Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where we get into people's heads and find out how their choices in life has affected them. My name is Leslie Fear. I'm your host. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everyone. Today I'm joined with Dan Weiss. He's with Federal Prison Time Counseling. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, how are you doing? Thank you. Thank you again for having me on. Oh, you know what? I'm so thrilled to have you. You were so intriguing to me and your story is so fascinating. So I would love for you to tell my listeners what your company is about and why you started it. Uh, Sure. So my company, Federal Prison Time Consulting, is a federal prison consulting business where we work with white collar offenders and nonviolent offenders, mostly dealing with the federal system that are first time offenders that are potentially getting ready to go to prison. So most of them are going through what's called like a pretrial. They're out on bond. They've been arrested. They've been indicted. Maybe they're under federal investigation and they're kind of waiting for what's next. But the, uh, the fear of what's next is usually what is really tough for individuals because you don't know necessarily, you know, you don't know what your plea deal is going to be. You don't know if you're going to go to trial. You don't necessarily know how much time you're looking at. So we and that's work- the whole reason you started this company, because your background is you were convicted of a white collar crime and you had no clue. You had no one to talk to about what to do, where to go, what kinds of things were going to happen when you did go into prison. And I'm sure you were scared to death. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. In 2011, I worked for a doctor who was ultimately over prescribing pain medication. Mm-hmm. I chose to turn a blind eye to it. Uh, I worked there. My fiance worked there. My best friend worked there. Um, I got them all the job. And when the doctor got indicted, they came after everybody that worked there. Um, You know, they kicked in our doors, just like, just like what you see on TV when you kind of see like the goon goon squad with, you know, automatic weapons and they come in with, it looked like an army raiding your house um, in the middle of the morning. Yeah. It's pretty terrifying. So I went through that whole process. And uh, uh, I'll tell everybody at the front of this that prison was the easy part. It was leading up to prison. That was the actual stressful part. Wow. Is it because you had to wait a while to find out your fate? Or tell me a little bit more about that, too. Yeah, you're really left in limbo. So, you know, either you're going to hire a private attorney or you're going to be appointed a federal attorney. And, you know, maybe if we have time, we'll talk about that just for a minute because, you know, I went through both. I went through a federally appointed attorney and then ended up firing him and hiring a private attorney and ended up with the same exact outcome. But you imagine that you're going to get a much better level of service through a private attorney. But the reality is, is there's so many questions that you have when you're going through this for the first time. If you've never been to prison or been to jail or really have never been in trouble, you you don't know what to expect. And when you start right. hearing, oh, well, you're probably looking at prison time. And when you look at like the worst case scenario, like if you're like, well, I'm going to fight this and go to trial and you start looking at what that really looks like. And, and like my situation, if I had gone to trial and lost, I could have been facing, you know, 20 years or more, which is crazy. <sighs> It's an unfathomable thought for a lot of people. I mean, for a lot of people, it's, 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 they can't even imagine. I can't imagine if I had to go to prison for six months or jail for six months and other people that listen to this that have done time that it's look, it's easy to go, ah, quit being a, you know what, suck it up. It's not that bad. You don't even know what real time is. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's, you're, it's only relative to what you know. Exactly. So that's what we're focusing on with our clients. And the way that happened is 
right before I went to prison, I threw a video up on YouTube, which maybe you'll post a link to. I just titled it going to federal prison. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know who to talk to. Uh, All of my friends, it was great. They all said the same thing, like, oh, the judge is going to see you're a good guy. They're not going to sentence somebody like you to prison. You didn't murder anybody. And I just got I kind of got tired of hearing that because I knew that wasn't the reality. And I wasn't looking for sympathy. I wasn't looking for somebody to tell me it's going to be all right. I just wanted to vent and not really hear anything. So right, exactly. Threw the video up on YouTube and uh, came out of prison and it kind of took off. We'll talk about that when you uh, when you're ready to jump into it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got like tons of hits on it, had no idea. And you're just like, what the heck? And it started blowing up. And you're like, what? (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people thought I was in prison going, all right, I got to set this business plan up when I get out and I'm going to become this prison consultant. I didn't know this was a thing before I went to prison or through my entire stay in prison. I had no idea my YouTube video was anybody was seeing it. Yeah. And so when you were talking, let's go back to where you were working. So you said you turned a blind eye. So you kind of knew it was all pretty underhanded that it was probably illegal. Correct. Uh, yeah, completely. Um, I did not think it was technically illegal. I thought it was completely zero morals were involved. Unethical oh, yeah. 100% to this day, standing here in 2020 of October, I still don't necessarily know what the doctor did was illegal, but the government painted their own narrative, that picture. So basically uh, now the guys that I was working for, Definitely had some warning signs on these guys. Uh, they, I met them in Boca Raton, Florida. I was mm-hmm. renting, I was renting a small amount of space out of an office they had. Um, I had a small right. credit restoration business, and I was renting some space from these guys. And they were definitely very shady. They kind of reminded you of like a cheesy mafia movie. That was the right. type of demeanor and attitude these guys has. And one day, one of them came up to me and said, "Hey." we got a guy that wants to put some money into a doctor's office or a pain clinic in Savannah, Georgia. And he thinks you might be good as the office manager. Knowing I had zero medical experience, they just thought I would be good with people. I'd be good at speaking with people. And really what it was is they wanted somebody that wasn't going to get high and steal drugs um, because it was a pain clinic. So they agreed to like bring me up there and train me with whatever medical information I needed. And they even let me hire my girlfriend as the office receptionist. They let me hire my best friend as the guy that would do like your triage, checking your blood pressure and doing the urine tests. And, uh, they said, we'll give you 10 grand a month, move you to Savannah, Georgia. Well, all of your expenses paid and we'll even continue to pay on your condo here in Florida. So you can continue to see your kids and, Honestly, my business here in Florida was barely breaking even. And after I would pay individuals, there was sometimes no money left for myself. So it sounded like a great opportunity to free and clear 10 grand a month. I was, where do I sign? Even though it sounded really too good to be true, you were probably ready to do it. And these guys weren't the most upstanding people. You're not going to say no when they're waving their big guns around and inside. Yeah, there was always a lot. I'm telling you, but I'd walk in the office and if you come in there too early in the morning or you come in there after hours, you don't know what you're walking into and you'll just kind of see a bunch of guys talking and there's just kind of guns sitting around and to them, it's just normal. Like me and you will sit down and maybe put our cell phone on the table. These guys are like, oh, let me get my gun out of my pocket. It's kind of in the way. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what was going on in there. But I'll tell you, leading up to all of that, a lot of my choices in life have been kind of constantly looking for a shortcut, never really wanting to put in a lot of work and effort to get what I wanted. So I got real used to making 
choices that I thought were rational, but I got so used mm-hmm. to making irrational decisions that I don't even think I recognized how irrational my thought process any longer was. Right. And I think that unfortunately happens to a lot of people. But no, so you're working at this clinic and, you know, I don't know how, actually, I don't know how long you actually did have the clinic open. How long was it open? Um, so about six weeks, and this is where I really should have saw the red flags. I don't think we spoke about yeah. this yet. Before yeah. Six weeks before they opened, they were like, hey, we also need you to do marketing to start promoting the clinic. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, what kind of marketing do you want me to do? They're like, well, it's a little aggressive. I was like, well, okay. I mean, what do you need? They're like, so we have a lot of competitors in the area from Jacksonville all the way up to Georgia that have been in business a long time. What we're going to do is we're going to rent a hotel across the street from them. One guy's going to be in the hotel with binoculars watching people come out with license plates that are driving north that are basically going to be going like past Georgia, maybe out to, you know, Kentucky or Ohio. They're just going to keep going. And your job is to chase them down, flag them over, basically pull them over and what? Yeah, pull, <laughs> pull them over, hand them a card and say, hey, I didn't mean to scare the shit out of you, but next time. <laughs> When you're coming to refill your prescription, instead of driving all the way to Jacksonville, we just opened a brand new pain clinic right off of 95 in um, Garden City by Savannah. We'll give you your first visit free and the doctor probably writes heavier than the doctor you're dealing with now. So this was kind of like the aggressive marketing that they had us doing for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it was actually it was kind of fun. It was like being a kid, like playing like kind of like spy games, but you don't know if these people got guns or if they're calling the cops on you or what do you do? Some guy rolls up on you and he's flagging you to pull over. You know, it's kind of terrifying. I think they probably all thought we were cops. Oh, well that's true because they knew they were doing things that. Oh yeah. 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 So, so from that point to the time we actually opened and we opened, I want to say it was, uh, I'm so bad with dates. We were only open about four months before this whole thing came tumbling down before the feds came in and just, uh, destroyed it. Wow. Okay. So you have your best friend working there. He's doing triage. You have yep. your girlfriend, fiance there answering the phones and you're doing the managing uh, of the actual office, right? So yep. they come in in the, I get, you said in the morning, right? To our house. Yes. Uh, oh, was it out of a house? Oh yeah. They, that's, that's where they got us. They didn't wait till we got to work. They went to everybody's house individual that morning where we were all living. Oh, and, and- yeah, you kick, didn't tell me that. <laughs> kick, kicked in the doors. Yeah, well, not kicked in, but it was like a, uh, a not like a. It was a knock. It was when they say knock warrant. This thing, it sounded like you knew whoever was at your door probably wasn't there to check on you. It was something bad. Oh my god. Okay. Wow. All right, dude. So you're immediately taken in. Did you hire an attorney, or were you appointed an attorney? Because I know at the time you probably didn't have a ton of money. Well, the way it happened, the morning they hit everybody. We had the pain clinic in Savannah and the owners had just decided they wanted to open another office in Atlanta. So they had bought Mm -hmm. into an office that was already existing. They sent me to Atlanta to train the person that was going to be the office manager there. They wanted me to train them the way we did things in Savannah. So I was actually in Atlanta when the whole thing happened. And what happened Mm -hmm. was is the morning that they hit everybody, uh, they didn't hit everybody. Some people, they didn't know where they lived. So usually me and Shelly, my girlfriend, we'd have a quick conversation every morning on our way to work. That morning, I couldn't get a hold of her. I couldn't get a hold of my other friend that was working with us. And then one of the owners called me and said, hey, have you heard from Shelly or Costa? That was the other kid. I said, no. 
He goes, did you try logging into the cameras? Because we had one of those IP camera systems you could log into from mm-hmm. anywhere. So I checked the cameras. Cameras are down. So we're starting to get a little bit worried. I call the restaurant right next door, this place called, uh, place called Fatso's Burgers. And Tony answers from Fatso's. And I'm like, hey, D- this is Dan from next door. And he goes, hey, where are you? I was like, what do you mean? I'm in, I'm in Atlanta. He goes, man, there's cops and FBI agents running around here like crazy. And they oh. keep coming in here asking if we know who you are. I was like, they're asking for me. So I'm freaking out. I'm, I'm realizing yeah. now it's, I'm realizing now what's all going down. So I'm thinking, all right, I need to drive back to Savannah and go find out what happened. So I go back right. to the hotel. I pack up my clothes and stuff. And I had a little bit of marijuana because that's really the only thing I ever did was smoke, smoke marijuana. So I put the mm-hmm. marijuana in my suitcase. And as I'm getting ready to leave to go back to Savannah, I say to myself, maybe I should go back to the pain clinic and take the money out of the safe because there's a good chance they're not going to be able to pay me this week. And I'm not going to be able to get back to Savannah or back to Florida without my paycheck. So I go take right. all the cash out of the safe, which there wasn't a lot in there. There was maybe like like four or five grand in the safe at that at that point. And I go to get in the car. I'm, I'm driving this little rental convertible Camaro and I hear a tap on my window. I look over and there's just this regular guy standing there. And he's like, hey, Dan. And the way he said my name, I thought maybe he was a patient from the other clinic that recognized me. And as soon as I said yes, guns were drawn. DA, DA, get out of the car, get out of the car. They got me out of the car. Threw oh me in gosh. handcuffs. They had me sitting in the back seat of, of my car for whatever reason. They put me back in my same car, had me sitting there. And then the, one of the cops walks over and he's like, hey, we saw you throw that pill on the ground. And I was like, what? And it's like, and I'm freaking out because I didn't throw a pill on the ground. And I was like, you're, you're lying. I didn't throw anything on the ground. So they're going back and forth, back and forth. And finally, the cop goes, if you didn't throw that on the ground, why is that sitting there right by your car? And they didn't know where they were. They didn't know they were at another pain clinic. They just got a call. Oh from the local guys in Savannah said, this is the address, go get them. So I'm trying to explain to them, this is a, uh, this is, this is a pain clinic. This could have been dropped from like one of a million different people. So ultimately they charge me with that. They find a little bit of marijuana in my suitcase and that they dropped the charge on. So they arrested me and brought me to County jail in Atlanta, which was just torture. Uh, Just the whole thing. I had to bond out. Then I had to get to Savannah and I had a warrant there. So I had to go to jail in Savannah and I had to bond out again, you know, and then I finally got an attorney. This is when they appointed me an attorney and we fought it and fought it and fought it until they came to our house again. Now me and Shelly are living back in Florida and this now we're jumped forward about 2013. We thought this thing had kind of died because so much time would go by without hearing anything. And right. again, Boom, boom, boom. First thing in the morning, you hear the doors and I run up, I look out the window and there's a bunch of DE agents sitting out there and they, they come in, grab me and Shelly, put us both in handcuffs. And that's, that's when we actually got indicted in 2013. So 2011 to 2013, pure limbo. And then 2013 to 2014, fighting the case before finally accepting a plea deal. Yeah, because you're probably thinking they forgot about us. You know, we haven't heard anything in a couple of years. This is, I guess, blown over. There's maybe more serious cases they're working on. We're good. You, you yeah. know, you hadn't heard anything. I think way back in your mind, you still know that it's lingering out there, but so much time would go by that uh, once in a blue moon, my attorney, when he would call me, you know, I would see 912 area code for Savannah, Georgia. And that's when just anxiety and PTSD would kick in. And Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Totally get that. Okay, so when you do finally go before a judge, tell me what happens then. So I finally accept a plea deal where they end up charging me with just one count of conspiracy. And they gave me a plea. Uh, they capped my plea, meaning it was a max of 60 months. That's the most time that I could be sentenced to under this plea agreement. So when I actually went okay. to sentencing... 
after I signed that plea deal, when I went to sentencing, the judge downward departed from 60 months to 42 months, which still to me felt like an extremely long time that I needed to serve. And then the judge gave me about, I want to say about two and a half months, two months or so to self-surrender. And this gave, because once you get sentenced in federal court, you don't know where you're going to go right away. And unless you're sitting in county jail waiting, if you're out on pretrial like me, it, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll let you stay out on, on pretrial or bond, basically waiting to self-surrender until you get designated. So they, I had to actually turn myself in on September 23rd, 2014 to the actual prison, which is Coleman Federal Prison in, in Middle Florida. Okay, well, we got to talk about the incident. The night before you went out with your buddies, you guys got a little, little happy, little, little drunk, whatever else you did. Yeah. And your your buddies were telling you, "Hey, you need to make a statement." I have my dogs in here, so uh, that's I, okay. My yeah, you need to make a statement, and uh, and this is really kind of funny. Yeah. So as I'm getting ready to self surrender the the next day, we're at my house, kind of packing some extra things up and. If anybody ever has to go to prison, you get the ability to self-surrender. Packing your house is a very weird feeling. It actually feels like you're packing the belongings of a dead person because you don't I know how. I never thought about that. Yeah, you know, it wow, is the weirdest surreal yeah. feeling. Like I'm packing my own stuff and I don't know if I'm ever going to see. And I mean, 42 months, I knew it would come to an end at some point, but it just felt, it reminded me when my father passed away, when I packed up his house, it gave me that same, just kind of a weird, like, oh, just. Oh, wow. Yeah, dead, dead feeling anyway. So we're packing up and my friends are trying to, you know, keep me in good spirits. And mm-hmm. of course, they got me smoking weed and we're drinking alcohol. My friend Matt's like, man, you got to make the statement. You can't you can't just go in there. You got to go in there and make a statement. I'm like, well, you know, we're coming up with ideas. So finally, Matt's like, let's stop at a Halloween store it's like a party. It was Party City, uh, whatever it is. Party City, the, right. the costume store, yeah. the party store. Oh. He's like, let's stop there and let's buy a Halloween costume and you'll dress up as as an inmate. You'll buy the black and white pinstripe. We got the little <laughs> hat and the little numbers on your chest. And now I'm, I'm drunk and high and I'm like, yeah, this is a great idea. I'm in. I'm in. So the next morning. I'm very hungover. I'm still just exhausted. I go drop my car and my dog off at a friend's house that's going to keep an eye on my dog for me. And then we go right. straight to the Halloween store and pick that up, drive to prison, which is about a three-hour drive. And as we're getting wow. closer and closer, I'm just like, ah, I don't know if I, in my mind, I'm like, I don't, I don't think I should do this. This is a really stupid idea. But I got there and they were like, man, you told everybody you're going to do it. They were just peer pressure. And I'm like, all right, whatever. Oh, right, I put, right. put on the costume. We get out of the car. They're they're walking alongside of me, and they got their cell phones. They're recording, but they've got their phones hidden because you're not really allowed to record on federal property. So, oh, gotcha. okay. as we're walking up to the actual low, the building for the low security, we see this perimeter truck that does the perimeter of the entire prison that just makes sure nobody's escaping or no holes in the fence and no contrabands being introduced. Sure. And he sees yeah. us and he pulls up and he's like, "Hey, can I help you?" And I'm wearing this stupid prison costume. And I'm like, um, I'm here to self-surrender. And I remember, he was a really cool guy. I remember he looked at me like kind of up and down. And he goes, yeah. you're going you're gonna to go in there like that? And I said, yeah. All he said was, all right, good luck. So walked up to the front door of the building and I hit the little buzzer, buzzed me in. And I walked up to like this, like the front desk, the concierge desk, I guess you could call it, of the BOP. Right, right. And... Uh, they had me sitting there for probably about 15, 20 minutes. My friends are inside with me still with the phones recording. And then I'm just waiting, 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 not thinking anything of it. And then off in the distance, I can see these three giant 
COs, correctional officers walking towards me. And one of them, uh, actually two of them were lieutenants, which I didn't know at the time. It was two lieutenants and a regular CO, but giants. Right. Each, each one of them was six, four or bigger. Um, oh, wow. And, they're, and yeah. they're walking up and they got these look, this look on their face was just, you could tell they're not here to like give me like this warm welcome. So I'm like, all right, I can't. And you're just un- standing there in the <laughs> I mean, I can't take it back now. It's already this no. far. I might as well. I might as well take the last shot. And right as they came up to me, about a foot in front of me, I just stood up, and put my arms out in like handcuff position, and said, "You got me, coppers." And oh, poof, no. these guys—you would never know that guys this big could move like lightning. I mean, grabbed me, oh, really? snatched me, wow. threw me yeah. against the wall, uh, ripped ripped the clothes off me like they were made to come off like that. Just ripped them off me, and I felt completely just exposed just so oh, violated yeah. and he just whispers down in my ear and he gets real close and he's like you think we're your fucking friends you think we're here to play games with you and man brought me to it an intake cell let me sit there they thought i was on all kinds of drugs they you know drug tested me they did the dna swab of my you know saliva and once they realized that i uh, at least at that moment wasn't really on anything else other than marijuana they they opened the door and said go to that dorm they pointed to a1 sent me to the Mm -hmm. dorm walked in and that's when i realized it wasn't as scary as i thought it was going to be because you know guys just started coming up to me and they're like hey you need some coffee here's a coffee cup um the one thing i wasn't prepared for again Mm because you watch too much tv was immediately guys kept asking me you know what are you here for and in the federal prison system you have different custody levels you have camps lows mediums penitentiaries Camps, okay. no fence. That's usually where like your white collar guys will go. That's usually where guys like me would go. And okay. the low securities are set for people that, you know, either have some serious time, they've got some gun charges, maybe there's, you know, gang affiliation, or they're a sex offender. So when they okay. asked me, what are you in for? And everything I've seen on TV is you say, you know, you don't tell them. So I was just like, I don't want to talk about it. And they kept right. coming up to me. Different guys would ask me the same question. Eventually, after four or five questions, the first guy came back up to me. And just looked at me as like, do you mess with little kids? But he didn't say mess. He used the F word. Do you mess with little kids? And I was like, Mm -hmm. I I didn't even know why he was asking me this. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, no. And he's like, well, you you don't want to tell us why you're here. That's a pretty dead giveaway. Usually when you say I'm for a computer crime or I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it. It's because you, you fondled kids. Um, So I had to go get, I had to go get my paperwork and show them what I was in for. And then uh, as soon as I did that, everything was fine. I could sit where I wanted to sit, watch TV when I wanted to watch TV and not really have to worry about anything. I got to say, it's pretty impressive that they're that against people that are, that do that to children. I think that's something. In in one aspect, but then you also got to think about like, you got some of these guys that maybe got caught, not to justify it, but maybe the guy was 22 and he got caught with like a 17 year old's picture on his phone or something. Um, right, right. And it's yeah. the same, at that point, you might as well be a baby rapist. I mean, it's the same, it's the same treatment. And then a lot of these guys that have those crimes, the sex offense crimes, there's really no, there's no therapy. There's no programming really for them in the prison system because they're so ashamed Mm -hmm. to tell anybody that they get out with the same, whatever that issue that caused them to do that the first time, that addiction is still there. And a lot of these guys don't do a lot of time. They might get three to five years and then they're back out re-offending. So it's, it's a very hard, I mean, I saw how these guys just kind of like had to keep to themselves and it's, you're a hermit crab for a couple of years and it just looked so extremely rough. Wow. The ones that were convicted of child crimes and were really ousted by the other inmates. 
Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, and they, it's, yeah, a lot of them. Yeah. Ha- a lot of them had a look. To be honest, a lot of them. Like it's, really? it's, it's not something that I thought would be so stereotypical, but, uh, best way I could describe it to somebody that's never been through it. And you see a lot of these guys that look like maybe they live in a basement of their parents' house and they don't shower a lot. Yeah. And they just, <laughs> I, that honestly, it's what a lot of these sex offenders look like. And a lot of them, they're just, they're not all there in the mind. Like they haven't completely grown up. There's still something a very, there's, they're very scared, intimidated of everything and just not no confidence. So it seems like they feel like they relate better with kids is the impression that I would get from it. No, I, Well, it makes sense in that respect as far as mentally speaking. So so you're there in prison and you were convicted 42, you said 44 months? 42. 42 months. But you didn't serve 42 months. So tell us about that and what you did to make Correct. it not so long. And this kind of leads into how the business started. So okay. um, Getting to prison, I found out about a program called RDAP, R-D-A-P, Residential Drug Addiction Program. And what it is, it's a cognitive behavior therapy program that is a 10 to 12 month program that you take once you're in the prison system. If you qualify for this program, and there is certain prerequisites you have to have that qualify you for this, but if you qualify for this, it can reduce your sentence by up to 12 months, depending on how long your sentence was. So for somebody like me... And because I did qualify for it, and I'll tell you in a minute why, but because I did okay. qualify for it, uh, immediately your good time comes off the top when you go into the BOP, the federal prison system, which is 15%. So you serve 85% is what you're going to serve if you do nothing else. Then okay. RDAP, RDAP then, when I completed RDAP, it took off another year. And then they also said, okay, your last 11 months of your prison sentence, we're going to have you do in a federal halfway house, which is going to be by your home where you can go home on the weekends and you can right. go back to work. So once they deducted all of that time, it had me only actually in the prison system uh, at Coleman for 13 months, gotcha. which I thought was okay. fantastic. Uh, yeah, that I mean, wow, that's that is fantastic. Okay, so the thing is, you didn't know that at the time. You didn't know that if you entered these programs, it would help you, it, you know, it would take off time or, or if you did, you were told later and, and you probably, it would have been nice to know beforehand. I am, I'm, I'm assuming. Correct. And this is, this yeah. is ultimately what led me into, um, becoming a prison consultant. So we talked earlier how I had the ability to self-surrender after I got sentenced, the judge said, you have 60 days to turn yourself in three right. days before I self-surrendered. I put a video on YouTube that I told you guys about. And when I got out of prison, I realized that there are so many things that my attorney could have done different. They don't, the problem is attorneys do not know. They mostly know nothing about after you get sentenced. They don't know about the prison custody levels. They don't know which prisons have the residential drug addiction program. And most Mm -hmm. of them don't even really know what qualifies you for the drug program. So in order to take the drug program, after you sign your plea deal and go in front of the judge and plead guilty, not your sentencing date, but just the day that you admit guilt. After right. that, you have an interview with uh, U.S. probation, which is part of the courts. U.S. probation is going to interview you about your past, your your criminal history. They're going to interview about your mental health, uh, your finances, and they also interview you about your substance abuse. They want to know if you have any, if you have a known drug problem. So right. when a lot of guys that get in trouble that are especially first time nonviolent offenders or white collar guys, you're doing this interview process. This could be years after you're originally arrested. You may have been on probation now or supervised release for two years. And they right. ask you, do you have, did you have a drug problem? And you automatically want to say no, because you don't want yourself to look any worse or you think somehow right. it's going to get you in more trouble. 
And the reality is, is a lot of people drink on a regular basis. A lot of people smoked marijuana on a regular basis. And a lot of guys, even, you know, prescription drugs, even if it was prescribed to you, if you were right. taking it for too long, you could have developed a, uh, an, an addiction. addiction to this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So by not telling this to the probation officer, when you get to prison and you go try to get in the RDAP program and you go talk to the RDAP coordinator and they go to look at your PSR, which is the report that that probation officer generates. And if it says in there, defendant reports, no alcohol or substance abuse, you're automatically going to be disqualified for that program. So knowing to share that information at the right time, realizing that it's not going to make your life any worse. If anything, it's going to help you not just get the year off. But I thought RDAP was going to be a joke. I thought it was going to be this bullshit class and it was going to be similar mm-hmm. to like you get a speeding ticket, you go to driving school, you knock off some points and you, you know, you kind of tap dance your way through it. Right. I had this grandiose mentality that I was going to do that. And this class, this course knocked me on my ass because it had very little to do about drugs. This was about taking accountability for your actions, you know, not justifying wow. your choices and hold, you had to tell on each other. If I saw you take chicken out of the chow hall, I got to go tell on you the next morning in a morning meeting. So it's like you're forced to do all these really uncomfortable things that completely almost re-challenges what's made up your DNA to begin with for 10 months. And not everybody gets through it. A lot of people get kicked out of the program and a lot of people actually quit the program. Oh, really? So, but you knew at the time, if you completed it, you'd have less time to to serve, right? So you just oh, yeah. stuck with it. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. thought I, I thought I was several times. I thought I was about to get kicked out because I had come real close to making stupid mistakes and, you know, just getting myself in these dumb little jams and it's story of well, my yeah. life, just making seemingly well, <laughs> unimportant decisions. But you know what? I think obviously you're doing great now because now, now you're out. What was the date you got out? I got out October, so I went in September 23rd, 2014. I got released October 23rd, 2015. Okay, you did very well. You're only there for not very 13 long. Months. That's, yeah, yeah, 13 that's months, yeah, 13 months exactly to the day. Yep. Wow. But when you came out, had you already decided, okay, I got to do something to help other people because I was clueless. My family didn't know what the heck to do. My friends didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Is no, that because when you decided? I... I didn't realize I didn't realize that so many people felt the same way as me. I had no clue. My idea when I came out was to go back to what I knew. I was going to find an investor. I was going to open up another call center and get into student loans or loan mods or some call center type of a thing. So right. they released me to the halfway house. Um, I'm at the halfway house and they let me use this little computer that was probably the first computer ever built in the history of man. Yeah. And I'm on this computer <laughs> trying to check my email. I finally get into my email and I see all these emails, uh, YouTube comment, YouTube comment. I'm like, what YouTube, what, why is YouTube sending me an email? I forgot about the video I posted. So I check and I see that video comes up and it's all of these, all of these comments from individuals that are going through a similar process, not the same crime, but a similar experience for the first time. And they've all got the same question. They're like, Hey, how much time did you really do? What was it like? Uh, uh, just, I mean, every question that I ever had. I read all those questions and it was about maybe two or 300 comments. So wow, I had this, I had this little job working for a friend where I'd go to work every day. He had this little office that he rented me out. And the cool thing was, is I was living in Washington at this point, Washington state. Uh, The guy I was working for was in the East coast in Florida. So he had me working Florida hours. So I really was done by 3 PM West coast time because that was six o'clock East coast. But right. To do me a favor, he kept me on the books until 9 p.m. my time, which kept me out of the halfway house all day long. So from 3 p.m. 
to about 9 p.m. I had all this free time, so I thought it would be fun to make response videos to a lot of these questions on YouTube. So I started making response videos, and then once people saw that I was out, they had, oh my God, the questions just, I mean, it was just boom, boom, boom with questions, and it was really cool. I had I had a lot of fun answering it, but then people started asking me, can we hire you? And then criminal defense attorneys started asking me if they can hire me to consult their clients, wow. and I had no idea how to go about doing this. And I was afraid that the halfway house was going to freak out because I didn't even know if I was allowed to be doing that while I was in the halfway house. Oh, that's so true. I made, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. <laughs> I, once I saw the channel was getting traction and getting bigger and bigger, and it wasn't just like, you know, a couple people here or there, I decided to go to the, uh, forgot the guy's name, the guy that oversaw the halfway house and ask permission, knowing very well he could have said no. And I gave him right. the channel. He went and reviewed the channel. And he said, honestly, what you're doing is a pretty good thing as long as you don't talk about what goes on in the halfway house and you don't share anybody's privacy. He goes, I got right. no problem with you with you doing this channel. Um, That's awesome. So that was That's great. Yeah. So a lot that of people was the won't beginning get that. of it. Yeah, yeah that, that was the was beginning. The, and you were helping people. And it sounds like you really loved it because you call it street cred. You had the jail cred. You know, they all wanted to know. They had no clue. You gave them got answers. My street, got my street cred. Else. But yeah, so you're doing all this in the halfway house, you're getting more and more hits, you're getting now you're starting to get people wanting to hire you. What a high after being kind of kicked to your butt for what several years, you know, not knowing yeah. what's going to happen, not knowing if you're even going to go to prison thinking they forgot they didn't scaring you to death. You're I mean, you were just a lost person. And all of a sudden, the light and the sun comes out and the clouds part and you've got almost an automatic job. It was wild, man. And I, I didn't know if it was going to turn into an actual income because, you know, when people first started started getting money, it was basically uh, like donations. Like, because there wasn't a lot I had to offer. Like what we do now is not what we did then. Then it was just like, well, let me give you some phone information, a consultation. And at 50 right. bucks, 100 bucks, maybe somebody would really go all out and give me $500. But I never knew it was going to turn into a career until I really said to myself, this is like a second chance I have. And I've, I've screwed so many things up in the past by moving too fast. Part of me wanted to quit my job right then and there and do this full time. But the reality was, is, is the money wasn't there to do this. So it would have forced me to become extremely desperate. And when people become desperate is when they might tell you a few things that aren't true just to get money out of you. And then before you know it, that might go good for a couple of months, but then the word of mouth spreads around, the negative reviews pop out, and right. now you're right back in the same shitty situation you're in to begin with. So right. I kept my job and I was doing this. And I remember telling my girlfriend when it finally got to a point where now bringing in like two grand a month steady. And wow. my regular job was only bringing in a little bit more than that. And I told my girlfriend, but combined, it was like, you know, four grand a month. I told right. her, I was like, I think I'm going to quit my job and do this full time. I remember her saying, do you really think this is going to work? She's like, are you sure you want to do this? And she was basically challenging me because she knows that I've not always had the best. She went, remember, she went to, she also went to prison. Shelly went with me and we can talk about that in a second if you want to. So right. she knows what we had just gone through and she was completely happy with making next to nothing without looking over our shoulders, wondering if the cops were going to knock on our door. So absolutely. Yeah. She definitely well, she was, was scared to death. Yeah. She was, she was concerned that I might get caught back up in old ways and start doing things the wrong way. I remember asking myself, being honest with myself, is, is she right? But I kept telling myself, if I do things for the right reason and don't force it, 
and not really worry about how much money I'm going to make, everything else will kind of fall in place. And no, that's the right way to do it. Yeah. No, that's the right now, way to Here think. we are in, in 2020, and there's other guys out there that do exactly what I do. Uh, I wouldn't say there's many guys that do the same amount of work that we do. They do a, a, a milder version of it, and some of them mm-hmm. are charging for one client. They might charge $25,000, $30,000, where wow. the, the, the most I'll charge a client for your average client, we do have some like interesting cases, but for your basic case, the most we might charge is between six and 10 grand, which sounds like a lot, but we also work with these individuals throughout their entire prison experience. So while they're in prison, we're still with them. So we could be with somebody for several years uh, right. before we're done with them. And we've hired a, a licensed life coach. We've hired a professional writer. We've hired a chemical dependency professional. We hired a gentleman that used to be an attorney that does a lot of legal work for us now to help review motions or create motions. So, you know, there's a lot more mouths to feed now than there was before. Um, Absolutely. It, well, that's why it, you have to, you have to charge accordingly. If they're, if they're going to get the kind of service you offer, they're going to have yep. a way better experience. And like you said, I'm sure my listeners are like, why would he have to hire a writer? And I know why, but you tell my listeners why. Yeah, great question, because I'm so used to saying it that I forget people wonder. So when I yeah. say hire a writer, it's not like we're going to hire some fiction writer to come in and like recreate yeah. who you are. So yeah. we'll take anybody. We'll take you for an example. Uh, mm-hmm. You get wrapped up in a conspiracy or some kind of a white collar crime. You didn't pay your taxes or whatever happened. And you eventually find out. The, the reality sinks in and you're going to go to prison for 24 months. And your attorney comes mm-hmm. to you and says, hey, we need a personal narrative from you. That's going to be the letter that you're going to write that's going to go to the judge. And then we right. also need a couple letters from your friends and family, some people that can write some nice stuff on your behalf. You will get next to no guidance from your attorney, especially if you don't ask. If you don't ask for the guidance, the attorney won't give you any idea of what to write in the letter. If you do ask the attorney for some guidance, you might get some boilerplate template that they pulled off of the internet written by somebody that's never gone through it, or maybe an attorney wrote it. Uh, And and the typical outcome for most of these letters when you're dealing with with first-time, nonviolent individuals, white-collar individuals, is they really play the victim. Uh, They... Mm. And they don't mean to, but it's like, if you've got kids, you talk about how hard this is going to be on your kids and please, your honor, give me a second chance. The real person you're sentencing here is, is my kids, not me. Or I have a sick mother at home, or I didn't really mean to do this. I'm, it's just all of this begging, pleading. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And at the end right. of the day, the judge has got the same statement already in his head. And he's just going to say to you. If you were so concerned about your kids, why weren't you thinking about them when you committed your crime? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And no, it that's immediately exactly gets, what they're going to say. It immediately gets dismissed from any, it has no value. So mm. instead of letting people go down that road, and this is what a lot of our video content, we have almost 600 videos um, in our YouTube library right now. And a lot of those videos are really talking about the reasons for the letters and why we talk about this the way we do. Instead of just writing your letter or telling you what you should write, uh, Jenny, our our creative writing coach, has actually created a series of very well thought out questions. Um, We create an electronic format where we'll send it to the client and the client will send it to their friends and family. And the friends and family will click on the link and it'll be a series of questions of where your focus should be focused on. Instead of asking you what to write, 
we ask you for the questions. And once you answer those questions in good detail, then Jenny will take that and she'll go in and start crafting the narrative or the reference letters. And the final product is still your mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. but it's it's cut out all of the bullshit and all the blowing smoke and expecting the judge to like all of a sudden realize you're not a bad person. You're not going to go to prison. We don't right. ask for probation. We don't beg for probation. We want probation. We want the judge to give that to you. But we found using the movie. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um, Inception. So the movie Inception, the whole concept of that movie is I'm going to break into your dreams and I'm going to plant seeds. I'm going to get you to do what I want you to do without ever asking you to do it. And you never know that I even wanted that from you. So creating that level of persuasion doesn't happen by accident. And then when they start working through our coaching process, Mm-hmm. they start really seeing the change in their life and how they're sleeping better at night and the anxiety is reduced for months and months and months. This will go on while they're working with us. And in the end, after they're sentenced, they're still completely grateful. Even if they didn't get any departing off their sentence, even if it's exactly what their attorney told them they were going to get, they will still all tell you it was 100% worth its weight in gold because I stopped wanting to kill myself and I stopped wanting to hop on a mm-hmm. boat and fleeing, fleeing the country because I realized right. it's not that big of a deal. Well, you gave them peace of mind, Dan, that you can't really put a price on that. Oh, we do. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? I mean, it is worth no, it. Really it. Is. No, it yeah. really is. But at you know, everybody's day, in different. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's in different financial situations and not everybody can afford, you know, five, seven, 10 grand. So when right. we do have these people that are really, really struggling financially, we, we find ways to work it out for them. And I would say that's really what separates us from a lot of the other competition, other competition, only goes after white collar because they know white collars probably got deep pockets and they probably spent several hundreds of thousand dollars on their attorney fees. But there's nothing that they're going to do for their client that we don't do for our client for a reduced cost. Right. Now you work with people outside of Florida. I know you're in Florida. You work with every, I remember you saying that in federal court, it goes across the states. It's the same. Yeah, federal rules. guidelines, okay. rules, mm-hmm. regulations. It's it's uh, oh, it doesn't vary. Maybe very little, couple things here and there, but for the most, it's the same format across the country. Right. Okay. Gotcha. This is so fascinating to me, and I love your story. We talked about this earlier too, and I I asked you, are you kind of glad this happened to you? And I don't mean it because you went to you know to prison. Nobody wants that. But if it changed you, and if it affected you in a good way. It's almost like maybe it was meant to be. Maybe this is something you needed to go through to get where you are now. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I always used to see people because you know I've never had an alcohol problem or like a drug problem, and I used to see these people that after they would you know beat their addiction, they would continue to go to AA or continue to go to these places, and they'd always say things like, you know, I'm only one bad decision away from taking another drink, even though they have no intentions, they know they're not going to do it. But right. if you don't stay constant on the putting in the work and the maintenance. I know how easy it is for me to potentially make a bad choice. So even like right now, you can't see it. But for those of you that are watching on YouTube right now, I'm wear, I wear a white bracelet and it says RDAP. So while I was in the program in prison, they would hand out these these little rubber bracelets for different phases. So when right. I left, I asked her, I was like, hey, can I keep that? And she's like, most people cut them off and throw them away. But if you want it, I guess. She's like, what do you want to keep it for? I was like, eh, it's a kind of a, every time I see it, it reminds me of what I went through to get here and how nothing is worth making that one quick little, you know, shortcut when it can land you right back here. You can't see me nodding my head, but I am nodding my head. That's exactly what, that's exactly the frame of mind you need to be in. Good for you. Good for you. And that's doing this for a living, hearing people tell me their story day in and day out. That's also a constant reminder of, 
you know, even like taxes, you know, I've never paid taxes before. I've always been the kind of guy that's like, ah, don't worry about it. And now reporting my income and seeing how much the government's taking from me, it's like, man, I could have changed to zero. I could have done this. And it's like, yep, oh, tax evasion. I see it every day. People, people don't go to prison for not paying their taxes. They go to prison for not reporting their taxes. Um, right. You can report your taxes and work out payment plans forever with the government. But the minute you lie about what you really made, boy, they are coming to your house and they are not leaving alone. But you know what, Dan, isn't it kind of a psychology thing where when you start doing good, you, you are a better person? You know what I mean? You start feeling better about yourself when you're doing it the right way and you're doing it the legit way. Yep. I, I stopped lying to myself and I've made some mistakes since I've been out of prison. I've had issues with other consultants that I allowed myself to get too wrapped up in the competition and it's created, mm-hmm. it took away time from the business because I had to deal with that. And it allowed me to get focused on something that wasn't important. So the only way you get through that is the, the minute you identify it, you have to go right back to the basics and go right back to your, what, you were, what you were doing to get you right. back to the spot and uh, not give up because you might fall down, but you know, get up and just start doing push-ups or well, get back on the bike again. You're not going to come out of the gate knowing everything and you're going to make mistakes along the way. That's how you learn. And it's probably a good thing that you went through that just so you could learn even more and be better and do better. But you know what? I could talk to you for a long time, but um, I know you got to go. You're going out of town, boy. So yes, tell ma'am. everyone where they can find you on social media. I will put a link to your YouTube channel as well on my show notes, but tell everyone where they can find you. Sure. So most common place you can find me is obviously on YouTube. Um, that's where my biggest format is. That's where this mm-hmm. whole thing gave birth from. YouTube, I am RDAP Dan. That's R-D-A-P Dan. Or you can look me up under Dan Wise. Yes. Most social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm RDAP Dan or Federal Prison Time Consulting. My email, Dan at Federal Prison Time. Uh, my website, federalprisontime.com. Stop in, say hi. We do a lot of we do live feeds every single week on YouTube. So if you want to come see what we're talking about, give us a thumbs up. I appreciate it. Well, it's fascinating, and I am so thankful you came on my show because I I think this will be very helpful, if nothing else, interesting for people to just learn about. Nobody knows about this kind of stuff, you know. It's just uh, so interesting. So thank you so much for joining me. Yes, yes, I I love it. Thank you so much for having me on. I can't wait to do it again with you. If you like what you heard, please leave me a five-star review. It'll help my podcast out and more people will be able to listen. Also, I am a novelist and write paranormal romance. All my books are available on Amazon.com, so check me out. And you can also reach me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you guys all for your support, and I'll talk to you next week.